We're going to be going through Daniel chapter 5. And last week we read an incredible personal testimony. In fact, it was the testimony of the most powerful ruler the world has ever known, a man named King Nebuchadnezzar of the great Babylonian Empire, the empire that is recognized by history as the greatest of all empires. We got to hear the story firsthand of what the Lord did for this great king and how he brought King Nebuchadnezzar into a relationship with himself through some extraordinary events. This week, we're going to see God intervene in the life of another Babylonian ruler, except this one will not respond by turning to God. Two well-known phrases that you may be familiar with actually have their origins in the chapter we're studying today. If you've ever heard the phrase, the writing's on the wall, or the phrase, your number's up, both of those phrases come from Daniel chapter 5 in the Bible. Chapter 5 takes place in 539 BC. It's about 70 years after the events of Daniel chapter 1. 70 years after King Nebuchadnezzar conquers Israel. 23 years earlier, back in 562 BC, Nebuchadnezzar had died. And things get a little Game of Thrones-ish, I guess you'd say here. Following his death, his son, Amel Marduk, took power and lasted just two years before being murdered by Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, whose name was Neraglasar, who then took the throne in 560 BC. He lasted four years and then died for unknown reasons in 556 BC. His son, Labiashai Marduk, who was only a boy, succeeded him. Because he was so young, the counselors deemed him unfit to rule, and he was murdered as the result of a conspiracy just nine months after his inauguration. The Babylonian counselors then got to choose the new king, and they weren't bound by any bloodlines because Nebuchadnezzar's bloodline had essentially come to an end by that point. So they chose a man named Nabonidus, whose reign lasted 17 years, from 556 B.C., all the way up to the time of chapter 5, 539 B.C. 19th century archaeological discoveries tell us that Nabonidus did not like the job of being king. His counselors didn't like him, and in fact his people didn't like him either. So he spent most of his time away in northern Arabia and other places, and he left his son, Belshazzar, in Babylon as the acting king. And it's Belshazzar who is on the throne as we begin chapter 5. Daniel is around 80 years old at this point, and he's been retired from public service for years, most likely since the death of Nebuchadnezzar. So he's just been living a quiet life for probably around 20 years. He's a former prime minister of the Babylonian Empire, so he's still upper class, but he's been out of the public eye for a long time. And as this chapter opens, the Persian army, led by Cyrus the Great, is on the move. They've conquered many of the surrounding villages on the plain of Shinar that were around the city of Babylon, and Cyrus is actually engaging with the forces of Nabonidus out there outside the walls of Babylon, and Nabonidus and the Babylonians are losing badly. But instead of getting worried or panicked, Belshazzar and the Babylonians who are in the city do nothing for the reasons that we talked about last week. Their city is surrounded by two layers of walls that are 320 feet high. And we hear that number and we go, oh, that's a big number. But to put it in perspective, we're talking about walls around the city, the height of a 30-story building. 
That's how tall the walls were around Babylon, extending for 53 miles, according to the historian Herodotus. So they were not that worried when people began getting close to them. The city had a moat around it that was the diverted Euphrates River, and it even fed water into the city, under the city gates, under some channels in the walls, providing water to the city. And they had such good irrigation and farmland and supplies stored up inside the city walls that they were able to withstand up to a 20-year siege, according to historians. The city was considered impregnable, so nobody in there was really breaking a sweat, even though Cyrus the Great and his forces were rapidly closing in. They were feeling very sure of themselves as we begin in verse one. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. So in a show of defiance and bravado and confidence in the fortifications of Babylon, Belshazzar throws a lavish party for a thousand people, the who's who of Babylon. And what you need to know is that he and most other people at this party, according to the original language, are tanked. They are hammered, they are inebriated. And we'll continue on in verse two. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the, and then underline, gold and silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, underline temple, which had been in Jerusalem, underline Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So a few things to explain here. The literal word there for father is actually the word ancestor. Belshazzar was not Nebuchadnezzar's son. He was Nabonidus's son. The Chaldeans used the word father just as the Jews did in the days of Jesus. Some of you will remember the Pharisees saying to Jesus, Abraham is our father. Well, Abraham had died hundreds and hundreds of years before they were born. It was just that in Hebrew and in Aramaic, there's no word for grandfather. They just call him my ancestor, but the word there is just father. Father could be someone who died thousands of years ago. These vessels are cups that were used for worship ceremonies in the temple in Jerusalem. And when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, he had taken them back to Babylon as treasures around 70 years earlier. Now Nebuchadnezzar was very respectful of other cultures and other religions, so he didn't just come back and abuse these religious relics. He put them in what was essentially a museum of treasure that he had accumulated as he conquered the known world. So these cups were basically in a museum across the street from the palace is the idea. Based on the way concubines are mentioned in verse two, you don't know what that is? You've got Wikipedia, go look it up. Bible historians tell us that this party was essentially a drunken orgy. So Belshazzar gets hammered and in his drunkenness, he calls for these sacred cups, which were designed to be used in worship to God and he wants them brought to him so that he can use them as goblets at an orgy. Good idea, bad idea. Well, we'll see. But here's a point I wanna bring out, and you can write this down on your outlines. It's never wise to put yourself in a bad situation that's almost guaranteed to result in more bad situations. It's never wise to put yourself in a bad situation that's almost guaranteed to result in more bad situations. If you get absolutely hammered with a bunch of naked people around, you're gonna make some bad decisions. You get absolutely hammered while being in charge of sacred religious relics. You're gonna make some bad decisions. 
But let's play this out in our own lives. You get back in touch with an ex on Facebook just to see what they look like now, just to see if they'll respond to your message. That could lead to some bad decisions. You get angry and frustrated about something and you decide that's the time to deal with some issues in your marriage. While you're angry, that could lead to some bad decisions. If you decide to hang around parties and environments that aren't enjoyable unless you get drunk, that could lead to some bad decisions. It's never wise to put yourself in a bad situation that's almost guaranteed to result in more bad situations. It's just not wise. Verse three, then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. So Belshazzar and company are drinking from these sacred cups that were made to praise God, and they're using them to get drunk and toast the false gods of Babylon. No bueno, it's not good. Verse five, in the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. So he's just sitting there, they're having a good time and literally a levitating hand appears and begins writing in the plaster. And I, I, I imagine as this happens, the king screams out and all you can hear suddenly is the finger moving through the plaster just This would have been a worthy freakout moment and I almost imagine that this happens in like levels of freakout because there's the level of freakout when you see this, right? But you know you're drunk. Then there's the next level of freakout when you realize other people are seeing it too and it's not just because you're drunk. So he is freaking out. We're gonna get some details on just how much he's freaking out because these are the fingers of God, the same fingers that carved the 10 commandments into tablets of stone and they are etching a message in the wall of the banquet hall in Babylon. Verse six. Then the king's countenance changed, you think? And his thoughts troubled him. There's an understatement. So that, and then underline this, the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. Now you need to know, because it's my job to help you understand the word. The phrase, the joints of his hips were loosened, means more than you may realize. It's a Classy way of saying that he soiled himself when that happened. That's the state of mind he was in. Fascinating insights. I know this is why you come to New Hope Church. Verse 7, the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. I need to take this opportunity just in case any of us are believers and have never heard this before. Astrology is something that believers are to have nothing to do with. Its origins are in the occultic, demonic, pagan religious system of Babylon. And the whole premise of astrology, reading the stars, is seeking insight from creation rather than the creator. Don't joke around with it. 
Don't mess around with it. Don't take a Facebook quiz based on your sign. And here's what I want to say about this. You know, Christians, I've heard even Christians say, oh, it's nothing important. It's just silly. But we don't measure what is silly, what is serious, and what is not serious based on what everybody else says about it, right? We're Christians. We don't decide what matters and what doesn't matter based on what everybody else says. We decide what matters and what doesn't matter based on what God says in his word. And God says, this is real, it's demonic, and I want you to have nothing to do with it because God says it's offensive to me. It's an abomination to me. So if you're a believer, don't mess around with that stuff. It is offensive to God on a deep level. So he's called in all his counselors, all his magicians, all his people who have occultic insights, and he's like, guys, the king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, that's the color of royalty, and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Why third ruler? Because Nabonidus was actually the first ruler. He was the king. Belshazzar was ruling as second in command under him. So offering them the position of third ruler in the kingdom was Belshazzar offering the absolute most that he could offer. He is desperate to get an answer about what this message means. Verse 8. And I have this whole thing underlined in my Bible. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Why could none of them read the writing on the wall? Now it's highly unlikely that it's because it was in a language that nobody spoke. It was most likely in Aramaic, and even if it was in Hebrew, it wasn't only the Hebrews that would have been able to read it. Remember that Nabonidus has the very best of Babylon scholars who were the greatest scholars in the world at his disposal. There was somebody around who spoke pretty much every single language in the world. He had that at his disposal. There are all kinds of speculations based around the idea that perhaps this writing was some type of code. Perhaps it was a cryptographic message. We don't need to get into details on that, but what we do know for certain is this. The message was written in such a way that only Daniel could read it. That's what's clear. And the Lord clearly arranged it to be that way by design. So whether it was a code that only Daniel had the knowledge to read, or whether it was something only Daniel could read because the Holy Spirit told him what it meant, we don't know. What's important is that this was done in such a way that only Daniel could interpret it, once again making a mockery of all these counselors and their supposed supernatural insights. So understand what the scene was here. These magi, these counselors, these astrologers, Chaldeans and soothsayers, they're all heavy into the occult and they're frantically searching the night sky for answers in the stars. Some are conducting seances in the banquet hall trying to contact the spirit realm for answers. There's all kinds of occultic rituals going on all over the place as the king's counselors desperately search for any kind of answer. Verse 9, then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. That just means they were perplexed. They couldn't make sense of it. Verse 10, the queen, underline queen, because of the words of the king and his lords came to the banquet hall. Now the queen we're talking about here is not Belshazzar's wife because she's not 
at the party. Did you pick up on that? It says she came to the banquet hall, so she wasn't there. She is most likely the queen mother, the woman who was married to King Nebuchadnezzar, and she is still alive. She seems to be enjoying a position of reverence in Babylon. She's sort of like the queen mother of the state of Babylon. We read the queen spoke saying, O king, live forever. That's just the standard greeting. Do not let your thoughts trouble you or let your countenance change. She's actually chiding him. She's saying something along the lines of, get it together, you're the king. Verse 11, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is, and then underline, the spirit of the holy God. The spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, just your ancestor, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas, the actual word there for explaining enigmas is neat, it's untying knots, were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let this Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. So the queen apparently knows all about Daniel, and she has detailed knowledge of the miracles that he was a part of under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Not only that, but she knows he's still alive, and she knows where he's living in Babylon. She knows where to go to get him. When you combine that information with the fact that she's not at the party, some Bible commentators speculate that what is most likely is that she became a believer along with her husband Nebuchadnezzar, whose conversion we read about in the last chapter, in chapter four. She would have been welcome at this party. Anybody who is anybody would have been there. We see that she enjoys a position of honor because she's able to show up at the palace and go straight in to talk with the king. You couldn't do that unless you were extremely important in the city-state of Babylon. And we're gonna see that the king follows her advice. And yet, she seems to have chosen to not be a part of whatever's going on at this party. She's not a part of that scene. She seems to have chosen a separated life, just as Daniel was quietly living a separated life. He could have been at the party too if he wanted to. And she most likely knew Daniel because she too was following the living God. So make a note of this. Serving God means being set apart for him. The word there is actually consecrated. Serving God means being set apart for him. And this is such a crucial thing for us to remember as believers, is that part of serving God means there's just gonna be some places, some situations that we're just not going to be a part of, not because we're judging anybody else, but because we understand that our lives belong to Jesus. And so we are to do the things that he would love us to do, and we're to stay away from the places he would not want us to be at, where bad decisions might lead to more bad decisions. Serving God means being set apart for him like the queen mother was, like Daniel had been for the last 20 years. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. So understand the scene Daniel's walking into. Don't visualize it, but understand it. It's essentially a paused orgy, so there's probably still naked people all over the place. It's very clear what's been going on. The king's counselors are practicing occult rituals in different corners of this banquet hall, and Daniel sees what he immediately recognizes as the sacred gold and silver cups from the temple in Jerusalem, and it's obvious that Belshazzar and his companions have been using them 
has their own personal wine goblets. It's quite a scene that Daniel is walking into. So he's already ticked off. He's already burning with righteous anger about how they're blaspheming these sacred relics. And now we're going to see that Belshazzar is going to be very, very disrespectful toward Daniel. We read, the king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who's one of the captives, underline captives, from Judah, who my father the king brought, underline brought from Judah? Are you catching the attitude here? You see, the king starts by reminding Daniel that he was brought to Babylon as a captive because the Babylonians conquered Judah. He's putting Daniel in his place. And Daniel could have answered, yes, I'm also Daniel, the former prime minister and confidant of Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest ruler of the greatest empire the world has ever seen. I'm also that Daniel. But he doesn't. And Belshazzar keeps talking in verse 14. I've heard of you that the Spirit of God is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I've heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation... You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And I love Daniel's response because he's angry at the king's disrespect toward God. And at this point, Daniel's 80. He's one of those old guys that just doesn't have the energy to care anymore what anybody thinks about him. So instead of responding with, wow, what an amazing offer, O generous king, we read this in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. The translation is keep your crap, O king. And before this chapter closes, we're going to discover that these honors were really akin to being made captain of the Titanic after it had struck the iceberg. The whole ship is yours. Have fun. We're going to see that that's what this is like. And yet the Lord was clearly also speaking to Daniel, which is why Daniel goes on to say, Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up and whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men, his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew, that word knew literally means recognized, until he recognized that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. So Daniel begins by saying, in essence, Nebuchadnezzar, now there was a king. He was the real deal. And yet even he was humbled by God until he recognized that God is the king of kings. And if you don't know what he's alluding to there, we talked about all of that last week in chapter four. So if you missed that, go listen on our website and catch up on this. Verse 22, but you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Although you knew all this, 
So here's what he's saying. He's saying, Belshazzar, when you say, oh yeah, I've, I've heard of you. Are you that, Daniel? He says, you know all about this. This is the stuff of legend in Babylon. You know exactly who I am. You know exactly what God did to Nebuchadnezzar. And you've just hardened your heart and you're ignoring it. You've had enough revelation of who God is to respond, but you're choosing to ignore God. You're choosing to rebel against God. Verse 23, and you have lifted, that just means exalted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels, the cups of his house, the temple before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you've praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And then I love this phrase, and the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. In other words, you know who God is. You live in Babylon where the story of what God, get, God did for Nebuchadnezzar is legend. You know enough about him. You know who I am. You could have found out where I lived, but you chose to serve false gods instead. That was your willful decision. Verse 24, then the fingers of the hand were sent from him and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Uparsin, or Perez. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene, a mene is a mina. It's an amount of money. It was 50 shekels. As a word, it comes from the verb that means to number. So Daniel says, here's what it means. It means God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel. Tekel is another amount of money, it's just one shekel. And as a word, it comes from the verb to weigh. Daniel says, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. The idea is your life has been put on a scale and God has weighed you and you have not measured up. Perez, a Perez is yet another amount of money, it's a half shekel. As a word, it comes from the verb that means to divide. Daniel says, it means your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So when you put it all together, the message reads essentially, you have been numbered and your time is up. You have been weighed and found wanting and therefore your kingdom will be taken from you and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Belshazzar's reaction tells us that he knew immediately in his spirit that Daniel had told him the truth. And yet, unlike Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar doesn't repent. He doesn't change his ways in any way, shape, or form. He doesn't say, is there anything I can do to please your God? He doesn't even say, your God is great and powerful. He doesn't even call him Daniel's God. He doesn't do anything like that. But in my opinion, what we're seeing here again is the patience and grace of God. Because God didn't use Daniel to tell Belshazzar when he would lose his kingdom. He didn't say in an hour, in a month, in a year. So he had time to repent. Even in that moment, he had time to repent. He had a profound supernatural experience, which meant he could no longer deny the reality of God. 
You can't say God is not real when he shows up at your party and writes on the wall. But he still wouldn't change. And the reason is because when it comes to belief in God, the issue is never evidence. The issue is never evidence. It's always much deeper than that because when all the evidence in the world is given, it won't change the heart of the person who's determined not to believe, which is tragically the kind of person Belshazzar was. In the Bible, Jesus himself says it's a perverted and wicked generation that asks for a sign because Jesus is saying, because that generation, those people will always ask for one more sign. One more sign. Jesus said, I'll give you one sign. One sign that I'm God. After three days in the grave, I'll rise again. Jesus said, that's the one sign and that's the only one you need. So whenever you're talking to anyone about evidence for Christianity, if you're wondering if there's evidence for Christianity, you need to know that Jesus hung our entire belief system on him rising from the dead. He said, that's the sign. If there's one thing you want to know about, be an expert on when it comes to evidence for God, it's the resurrection. Forget whether or not creation happened in six literal days. Forget all that other stuff. None of that matters. The resurrection matters. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then he is God. And everything else he says has to be true as well. It's all about the resurrection. Verse 30, that night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And this is why the king's rewards were not a very big deal. They would only last a few hours. You see, unbeknownst to Belshazzar and all of Babylon, while they were partying, Cyrus the Great was employing his troops on an ingenious engineering project. We know that it was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but what he did brilliantly is he had his army go upriver on the Euphrates and move enough earth to divert the river away from Babylon, the river that fed the moat and sent water into the city of Babylon. And when he did this, the water level dropped low enough for his army to walk under the gates of the city and take it without a battle and with almost no loss of life. In fact, some records say that the only person who died that night in Babylon was Belshazzar. It was so bloodless and silent and effortless that there were residents in the city who didn't even know the city had been taken by Cyrus until three days later. So who is this Cyrus? Who's Cyrus the Great? Well, he's a man who's viewed by history, including the Romans and the Greeks, as the epitome of a great leader because he was brave and daring, but also tolerant and magnanimous. Even as recently as 1971, He was celebrated in Iran, who marked the occasion of the 2,500th anniversary of his monarchy. He established the Medo-Persian Empire, the unique result of his father being the king of Persia and his mother being the daughter of the king of Media. This enabled him to culturally unite the two empires under his leadership after his father died. In 550 BC, he would attack his father-in-law and capture his capital without a battle as well. Cyrus was a brilliant strategist who would use intelligence instead of force whenever possible. The Medo-Persian empire that he founded would continue for 200 years. It's a long time for a world empire and would only fall before the wrath of a young prodigy named Alexander the Great. It was October the 12th, 539 BC, 
when Cyrus's men took Babylon without a battle. Herodotus, one of the most venerated Greek historians of antiquity, sometimes called the father of history, is the one who tells us that Cyrus and his troops diverted the Euphrates to lower the water level to what he wrote was the height of the middle of a man's thigh and sneaked the whole army under the city gates by night. The city was not destroyed. In fact, it became Cyrus's winter capital. And two centuries later, over two centuries later, Alexander the Great would make it his capital. And Alexander would actually end up dying in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. It was still there. Additionally, another of history's most venerated documentarians, Josephus, tells us that shortly after taking control of Babylon, Cyrus comes upon an ancient scroll of the prophet Isaiah, the same book of Isaiah that will be in your Bibles. It was written more than 150 years before Cyrus reads it. And it contains, he discovers to his amazement, a letter from God to Cyrus calling him by name. Let me read it to you from Isaiah 44 and 45. I put it on your outlines. This is God speaking of himself about what he's gonna do in the future. More than 150 years before it happens, more than 110 years before Cyrus is even born. So check this out. Who says to the deep, God speaking of himself, be dry, and, and then underline the phrase, I will dry up your rivers. Now you and Cyrus for a moment might be thinking, ah, oh, that could just be a little bit of a coincidence. You could be reading too much into that dry up your rivers thing. But it can't really be a coincidence when he's describing the means through which Cyrus will conquer Babylon and then he immediately follows in the very next verse by mentioning the name of Cyrus. And we read, who says of Cyrus, underline that, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, which was in ruins at this time, you shall be built and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, underline his anointed, very interesting that he calls a non-believer his anointed, to Cyrus, underline Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and, and then underline the phrase, loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. And there's something in there I need to point out to you because it's amazing and it's absolutely hilarious. Where we just read God say that before Cyrus he would loose the armor of kings, it's not what it actually says if you read it in the King James and the original manuscripts. The original language says, I will loose the loins or the hips of kings, which is another way of God saying he will make kings soil themselves before the military might of Cyrus, which is of course exactly what happened to Belshazzar in Daniel 5. And the idea is that Belshazzar soiling himself would have been an event that would have been passed around through gossip among the troops of Cyrus and word of it would have eventually got back to Cyrus and he would have known about it. So only at New Hope Church will you learn things like the fact that God prophesied Belshazzar soiling himself 150 years in advance. God bless to us the reading of his word. He goes on and he says, I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. 
Can you imagine Cyrus's amazement when he reads this? I don't think we can even comprehend how amazing this was. Imagine finding out that God wrote you a letter more than a hundred years before you were born, calls you by name and describes events that have just unfolded in your life before you read it. No wonder he's impressed. God goes on and says, for Jacob my servant's sake and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you though you have not known me. I am the Lord and there is no other. There's no God besides me. I will gird you though you have not known me that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. And it goes on, and I'd really recommend that you read Isaiah 45 in your own time as a devotional. It's one of those rare places in the Bible where God himself talks about himself. It's an incredible devotional read. So we've seen what Belshazzar did when he was confronted with the reality of God. He didn't repent. What did Cyrus do when he was confronted with the reality of God? Well, history tells us that his response to this was to do exactly what God told him he was called to do. He freed all the Jews who were captive in Babylon, returned to them all the treasure that had been taken from the temple 70 years earlier. He went as far as creating financial incentives for the Jews to return to their homeland Israel. Only about 50,000 actually went back. And he even gave generous donations to help them rebuild the temple. His decree is actually quoted in Ezra 1. It's on your outline. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. So get this, that decree as well as his peaceful conquest of Babylon is documented on a historical artifact known as the Cyrus Cylinder, which dates back to this time and currently sits in the British Museum in London. You can go and look at it. Almost word for word, what's documented at the opening of Ezra is documented on the Cyrus Cylinder. It's pretty incredible. After some time passes and Cyrus the Great dies years later, Darius II, who sometimes called himself Nebuchadnezzar III, rises to power. In verse 31 we read, And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And Darius will be featured heavily in the next chapter, which we're going to study next week. So this is a fascinating story, and and, and maybe some of you like me just love to geek out on history and just understand this. It's fascinating, but I was asking the Lord this week, what, what do you want me to share from this? I mean, what do you want me to share? If you ever become king, make sure you honor God. Otherwise, you'll soil yourself and be killed by an invading army. What, what do you want me to share? Uh, I believe this is what the Lord would have me share with us this evening. The gold and silver cups were made to be used in worship to the Lord. They were made to be used in his temple. You and I were created for the purpose of worshiping God and bringing honor to him. And our bodies were made to be temples for his presence, for his spirit. And just as it was in this chapter, it is a serious, serious thing when we take our bodies, which were made to glorify God, and use them to worship false gods. 
And we do that when we use our bodies to pursue sexual pleasure outside of marriage. We do that when we use our hands and our feet and our minds to pursue greed and covetousness as we bow down in service to the gods of materialism and the gods of covetousness and wealth. We are not to take that which was intended to worship and honor God and bring him glory and use it to instead worship false gods. It's a serious, serious thing. I want to read two portions of scripture to you. They're both written by the Apostle Paul and they speak to this subject. They're both on your outline so you can read along with me and we'll underline some things. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And, and then underline, do not present your members, that just means your bodies, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. And, and then underline, your members or your body as instruments of righteousness to God. And in 1 Corinthians we read, do you not know that, underline, your bodies are members of Christ? Your bodies are part of Christ's body. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But, and then underline this, he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Why is it such a big deal if you're only sinning against your own body? Because of this. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? It's a big deal to sin sexually because you're sinning against your own body and your own body's the temple of God. You're sinning against the temple of God. And you, I love this, underline it, you are not your own for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see, your body, my body, it doesn't even belong to us. When you made the decision to follow Jesus, he gave you everything that he had. He shared everything with you. He gave you himself, including his body, which was crucified on the cross for you. And in exchange, we give all that we are back to Jesus, including our bodies. They now belong to him. They're not ours to do with as we please. They belong to God. The finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments, giving us his law, the standard our lives would need to live up to to meet God's standards. The problem is that standard was and is perfection, for he's a perfect God, and so he has every right to demand perfection from us. He's not being a hypocrite because he's actually perfect. Every single one of us has failed to live up to that standard. The writing's on the wall for all of us. We've all been weighed and found wanting. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But praise God, because the finger of God appears again in the Bible on the hand of Jesus Christ. They brought unto him a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Under the Ten Commandments, she was guilty. 
she was to be stoned to death. The religious leaders brought her to Jesus, not seeking justice, but seeking to trap Jesus. For if Jesus said she should be freed, he would be ignoring the law and violating it. If he said she should be stoned, he would be just another teacher offering nothing new. No solution to the problem of sin. No deliverance. What do you say should happen? They asked Jesus. And in John's gospel we read this. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear them. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last, And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So what did Jesus write on the ground that all these men just stood up and instead of accusing this woman just walked away? Well, based on their response and a prophecy in Jeremiah 17, I believe it was their sins. Perhaps places, dates, names. Motel 6, September 3rd, three years ago. And suddenly the first guy goes, um, I just remembered a thing I got to do. You guys just stone her without me. I got to take care of something. Another, another says, oh yeah, I just, re- I just remembered a, a place I've got, I've got to go to. It's some, somewhere else right now. And the same finger that indicted Belshazzar brings freedom to this guilty woman. John's gospel goes on and it says, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Then Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, Jesus didn't say, it's okay, you didn't sin. I don't consider what you did to be sin. He didn't say that. He said, neither do I condemn you. And he said that because she was guilty. Just like you and I, we are guilty. The only reason Jesus could say, neither do I condemn you, the only reason he can say to you and I, I do not condemn you, is because he knew that he was going to be condemned in her place. Just as he was condemned in your place, in my place. Her sin would be dealt with, it would be paid for, on the cross by Jesus with his life and his blood. The same way your sins and mine have been paid for. The same way Belshazzar's sins were paid for. What was the difference? One hardened his heart and the other turned her heart toward Jesus. Do you realize whether you believe in God or not, he's died for your sins? You're not saved based on whether or not he died for your sins. He died for your sins. You're based on whether or not you will choose to receive that forgiveness. Whether or not you will accept that trade, the divine exchange of your life for his life. That's what saves you. And then it says, then Jesus spoke to them, his disciples again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. 
So please understand this. The reason Jesus calls us to use our bodies and lives for his glory, to worship him, is because that is the path. It's the way of living that leads to the light of life. It's the most joyful and fulfilling way to live right now. Jesus is not trying to deny you anything or keep you from pleasure. He's trying to keep you from darkness and death and pain and agony and purposelessness. When we use our lives and bodies to serve ourselves and false gods like lust and greed and covetousness, we end up walking through life in darkness. You know what it is? We'll always think we're right on the verge of getting that peace, that joy, that hope, that purpose we crave, but we never really get there. That's the allure of sin, isn't it? Oh, if I could just be more popular, if I could just have more friends, if I could just have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a husband or a wife, a different husband or a different wife. I'm right there and I can, I can almost taste it. And if I just had that, the best analogy I can give you is the lineup system at Disney World. I don't know if you've ever seen this. But the men who design the places that you line up, the path you take at all the Disney parks are evil people possessed by the devil. Because the lineup is designed to make you think every step of the way that you're right there and you're almost at the front of the line. And then you turn a corner and there's like 3,000 people in front of you. And they design it so that you'll stay and you'll sit in a line for an hour for a two-minute ride by making you think you're right there, you're almost there. And that's the way sin is. We go, oh, God is just trying to keep me from something that's going to be really great. And I'm right there. So if I just did that, if I just had that, then my life will have meaning. And Jesus just knows, listen, it never works out that way. You're always one step away. You never actually get there when you serve false gods and live for idols. God says, I'm trying to keep you on the only path that leads you to the light of life, to the best way you can live right now. Jesus has forgiven you. He's forgiven you. He's called you to live a life in surrender to him. He's called you to live a life full of joy and hope and peace and purpose. And if you've not been living that way, if you have not been following Jesus, if you've not been using your life and your body for his glory, change today. Change today. Don't be like Belshazzar and say, oh, maybe some other time. He didn't have time and he didn't know it. Wouldn't it be better to avoid disaster and begin walking in the light of life today. The Bible calls that repentance. It's a change of direction. And Jesus wants you set free, living the best life that you can live today. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? And I just want to be blunt and honest. If you know that there's an area of your life where you are using your body, be it your hands, your feet, your mind, whatever, for sin when it was made to glorify God, repent and stop and change today especially if it's sexual sin because that stuff will eat you alive from the inside out it will destroy you I don't want to see that happen to you and neither does God he's calling you to live a better way if that's you today make sure you take communion it's available in the back take communion thank God that he's forgiven you and then change whatever steps you need to take to change. Do it. 
do it. Don't keep walking in darkness. Father, thank you that you've called us into the light of life. Thank you that through your word, you have done your best to reach us in grace and with clarity to let us know which paths lead to destruction and which paths lead to life. Father, through your Holy Spirit in us, you have made us your temples and you've taken up residence in our lives. So Father, may we manage the temple that is our body in a way that brings honor to you. May we not blaspheme you or dishonor you in any way. May our lives and our bodies be used to bring you glory and blessing and honor, God. We want you to be honored, Jesus. We love you for your grace to us. We love you for taking our place on the cross. We love you for saying to us that we are not condemned because you were condemned in our place. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.